The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. He begins in many different ways preparing his campaign to challenge the legitimacy of the election, and he obviously believes remain in office as president. It was his intention to ride right through January 20. It was an effort to prevent the certification of, of his defeat by Congress and counting the electoral votes. So what were the commanding agencies of, of power? If this was a foreign country and you were talking about a coup, you'd say the power ministries, things that are always get seized in a coup. Was there an effort to take control of them? Was Patel part of that? I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 11th, 2021. David Ignatius is a columnist for The Washington Post, and he recently ran a lengthy column in the paper about the machinations of a staffer named Cash Patel in the executive branch during the transition. Cash Patel's name may be familiar to listeners. He held a variety of positions in the months before Donald Trump left office, and Donald Trump considered him for a variety of other positions. It's a remarkable story that raises a whole series of questions questions Jack Goldsmith has been asking on Lawfare for a long time. We got Ignatius and Goldsmith together in the Jungle Studio to discuss the article, what was Patel up to in the final days of the Trump administration? What does it say about the way the executive branch functioned under Donald Trump? And what does it say about the supposed activities of the deep state? It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 11th. Ignatius and Goldsmith on the story of Cash Patel. So, David, get us started. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you ran an amazing reported column about Cash Patel, the former Devin Nunes staffer who seemed to go on a campaign to take over the intelligence community toward the end of the Trump administration. Let's start by just having you give a little bit of an overview of what you reported in that column and why the public should be interested in this relatively obscure name. Covering uh, the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies for many, many months, I'd been aware of this person, Cash Patel, who was playing a key behind the scenes role, both at the White House and then when 
the new uh, director of national intelligence, acting director Richard Gunnell was appointed, and then the permanent uh, uh, DNI, uh, John Ratcliffe. And then after Mark Esper was fired as Secretary of Defense right after the November election, Christopher Miller, former Special Operations uh, counterterrorism soldier, came to the Pentagon. And the key person in that takeover, a uh, new team, was Cash Patel, who I'd been, I'd been watching, as I say, for a long time. And I became very curious about what specifically he was doing. He had become a symbol of the Trump administration's battles with what they uh, imagined was the deep state based in the intelligence agencies, based in civil service, you know, Justice Department, the FBI. And what was he doing to try to push back the deep state? Uh, there were a whole series of, of actions that were unexplained. And I, I began trying to dig uh, deeply, as, as deeply as I could, over those months, starting in November and December. And then in, into January, began to get enough information from people to begin to to work on this as a piece of investigation. Uh, I say in the piece that I talked to a a dozen senior officials, current and former, one of the striking things, Ben and Jack, about this reporting was how many people who'd been part of the Trump administration had been concerned by Cash Patel and others working for him and had, out of the limelight, often invisibly, tried to prevent some of the things he was trying to do from happening. That was true in, in an effort to cut uh, links between the Pentagon and the CIA, a traditional support role military plays for, for CIA operations. Uh, there was an attempt to, to stop that. People just slow rolled it. Same thing with some efforts to assert political control, put new people in at the National Security Agency. They took some moves, but but the larger design didn't didn't happen. The conclusion of the story, and I'd love to talk in detail about this, was when President Trump decided that he wanted to install Cash Patel, congressional staffer for Devin Nunez just uh, four years before, in 2017, wanted to install him as the deputy director of the CIA with the idea that the director, Gina Haspel, would resign and he would become acting director of the CIA. This quite obscure 41-year-old former congressional staffer was suddenly going to be running uh, America's intelligence agency in the in the plan. It was pushed back, and we can talk about how, but sum it up, this personality, so little known, began to fascinate me, and I wanted to know what had he been doing specifically. And and what danger it he posed to these intelligence agencies and to our country. So before we dive into the details of this, I want to get your sense of the top line. So was this a situation of Donald Trump having some objective he was trying to pursue through this individual? Is it an example of a highly ambitious individual? using circumstances of the president's defeat and a whole lot of vacancies to work a particular personal agenda? Did he have policy goals? As you understand the story, what was Cash Patel trying to do and what was Donald Trump trying to do through the person of Cash Patel? 
As I said in my article, Ben, that remains a mystery, but I'll tell you the best uh, estimates I can make after spending all this time reporting. First, starting in 2017, Cash Patel, working for Congressman uh, Nunez, then House Intelligence Committee Chairman Nunez, was a leading voice in trying to question the investigation of Donald Trump, candidate Donald Trump's, then President Trump's, links with Russia at the what became the Mueller investigation had begun with the intelligence community assessment that was pre- presented to Trump in January 2017 after he was elected. And that assessment showed what the heads of the intelligence agencies thought was clear evidence that the Russians had tried to assist Trump in the 2016 campaign and tried to hurt his opponent, Hillary, from the beginning, that infuriated Trump. He thought it delegitimized his victory. It just was a burr under the saddle from from the beginning. That that understates just how furious he was about it. And Cash Patel and the House Intelligence Committee, from the first, were uh, leading a charge to try to show that the uh, evidence against Trump, the evidence of Trump's links with Russia, was was false. It was it was it was cooked. The Christopher Steele. My six officer who had done a report that was commissioned in the end by the paid for by the Clinton campaign that that his evidence was unreliable. So that was the first goal that that continued for Patel through these four years was to cement that Trump narrative. The, the Russian investigation is a hoax. There is information that, if disclosed, would reveal that. Uh, to the very end, they were trying to declassify and reveal that information over the strenuous protests of CIA Director Gina Haspel, NSA Director General Paul Maxoni, and many others, I, I believe, at the, in the end, uh, over against the op- opposition of Attorney General William Barr, who decided it was just not appropriate to, to release this information. So that was the first goal. The, the larger question is the one that's haunting. After Trump's election defeat on November 4, he begins in many different ways preparing his campaign to challenge the legitimacy of the election, and he obviously believes remain in office as president. It was his intention to ride right through January 20. It was an effort to prevent the certification of, of his defeat by Congress and counting the electoral votes. So what were the commanding agencies of, of power. If this was a foreign country and you were talking about a coup, you'd say the power ministries, you know, the intelligence agencies, the you know, things that are all, always get seized in a coup. Was there an effort to take control of them? Was Patel part of that in the expectation that somehow the Trump team would, would challenge and overturn the election results, that there would be a state of such disorder in the country that the Insurrection Act would be declared, the military would be called out, there'd be what amounts to martial law in the country during this period of transition. Was that part of Patel's job? And I honestly, I can't tell you with, with confidence that I, that I was able to prove that. I, I certainly uh, have heard people speculate about it. Some of the pieces that I uncovered in my investigation fit with that hypothesis, but I don't have hard evidence to show that that's what they were doing. So, Jack, when I first read David's column 
my first reaction to it was that this has about 10 case studies in it in theories that you have advanced at various times on lawfare from uh, reflections on the pushback of the deep state against the president to Trump's desire to and machinations to use political appointees to manipulate the bureaucracy to the pushback of some of those political officials, including in this case, Bill Barr and Gina Haspel. I'm curious for your reflections on how we should understand David's column in the broader scope of how we should be thinking about the executive branch during the Trump era. I think the episodes that David outlines, which are extraordinary, are really just the latest bit of evidence uh, about a whole bunch of propositions. One, Trump tried very hard to assert his will on the intelligence community and on the defense establishment. Two, he had some very loyal officials whom he sent out to, to do that, but he was unable to carry out his will through a combination of, as you say, so-called deep state figures resisting it, and also the Trump political appointees, so sort of more establishment figures at the top of these agencies like Haspel and Barr, not going along with it. And then, really remarkably, as David says at the end of his story, Trump could have pushed it through. I mean, in theory, the president could have just ordered the declassification of the materials that he tried to get out for almost his entire term, but he was never able to get out. And in theory, he could have fired Haspel and fired people who got in the way of his of his goals. And for reasons that still remain somewhat mysterious, Trump tended to blink at the very end. And it seems maybe it was a combination of very high officials threatening to resign, people that were his loyalist and who've been criticized for being too loyal to him in other respects. It's just a remarkable set of case studies about what a difficult time Trump had for for a whole bunch of reasons in imposing his will on the intelligence and defense establishment. And if I could say so, how well kind of general norms of good governance held. Now, if I could just say one more thing, though, you talked about, you know, Trump trying to manipulate the bureaucracy, but there's an ambiguity there. This is the president of the United States trying to impose his will on an establishment that he's supposed to have complete authority over. So there's there's a dangerous story. I mean, there, there's a there's a downside to this, and maybe it's limited to Trump, and maybe that's okay. But these are examples of the president, and one example David gives of is Trump wanting to withdraw and get troops out of Afghanistan and Somalia. That's something you would think the president would be able to do at the snap of his fingers, in theory, and Trump wasn't able to do that. So it's a complicated story, but it's it's a story I think that characterizes the whole Trump administration. So I'm interested in both of your senses of how we should understand Bill Barr in this story, because this is an issue that, you know, has a bit of a history. Barr sought and got from Trump the ability to declassify all kinds of materials in connection first with the Durham investigation and then with his own you know, desire to shed light on these sort of origins of the Russia investigation. And yet here, despite the fears that Barr would uh, do 
you know, some reckless declassification. He does seem to have been the one to finally put his foot down and say this is not happening. So should we understand this as Trump having pushed even Barr to his limits, Barr being a straight shooter? How do you, David, understand the role that Barr played in this episode? Well, you both understand Bill Barr far more than I do. My sense and what I was told by sources was that in the case of the declassification of this material that Patel largely had had gathered during his investigations for Nunez, that Barr, with a lot of experience from his time at Justice, understands and basically supports the idea that sources and methods must be protected. The arguments that the declassification of the material Patel and others wanted out would severely damage sources and methods and thereby national security was argued strenuously, I'm told, by General Maxoni at NSA, by Director Haspel. They were adamant in this. Mark Esper, not always somebody who was prepared to stand up to Trump, wrote a letter to Director of National Intelligence, Ratcliffe, when Ratcliffe was banging the drum for release of this material, arguing as strenuously as, as Nakasone, who reported to him, uh, had, had argued that this would be damaging, not simply to sources and methods, but to the safety of our troops. That's how, how seriously he took it. I quoted from his, his letter uh, in, my, in my column. So I think in the end, that must have been persuasive for Barr. I'm, I'm told there was a White House meeting a uh, real showdown over this, where Barr stood fast behind the arguments that were being made, in particular by by Haspel at CIA. And uh, don't again, I you know, never want to make Barr out as a hero in this story. One thing that I've thought often about is whether the January sixth story would have been different if Barr had still been AG and able to run, coordinate the response. He was more experienced. Uh, that maybe might have had a better sense of the dangers that were developed. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Jack, how do you evaluate Barr's role here? So I'm not at all surprised about Barr's role here. I don't know if you remember this, Ben, but we had a disagreement or a friendly disagreement when Barr was given this this authority to the delegated authority to declassify. 
And at the time, I, I argued that I didn't think Bill Barr was going to be jeopardizing national security by disclosing things that would harm national security. That's just not who he is. He, no, no doubt he was trying to vindicate the president from what he saw in many respects as, from what he saw as unfair charges and inappropriate behavior by certain officials. But I'm not surprised that Barr went to the mat if there really was a national, an adverse national security consequence here. So it's not surprising. I, I just think that Barr probably did a lot of things like this that we don't know about that were successful in tempering some of Trump's worst excesses. Uh, and I think this is one example that we now know about. But again, I'm not surprised by it. How about Haspel? So it has got to be a pretty galling thing to be a long-term career CIA officer promoted first to deputy and then to director who is suddenly confronted with the idea by the president that she should uh, stand down in favor of a congressional staffer and NSC staffer like Cash Patel, who clearly has a political agenda. David, what do we make of of Haspel's role? And for that matter, uh, not to throw two things on your plate at the same time, but uh, Miller's role, who is in somewhat the same position at the Department of Defense. Well, let's take uh, Haspel first. Haspel came to prominence as the person who figured out how to manage, assist, buffer uh, Mike Pompeo when he was CI director. Pompeo was a brilliant but volcanic personality, as we all saw when he was in the more public world State Department. But people knew about uh, sort of the Pompeo explosions when he was at CIA, and, and, uh, and, and Haspel was good at, at kind of helping smooth all that out. So she comes in, uh, succeeds Pompeo as director, and she has a president who, who's just drawn a bead on the CIA and the intelligence community, has come to regard them as his, as his enemies, develops ever more elaborate conspiracy theories about how they're in league with, with this one and that one. And although I don't think history will record Haspel as an outstanding director, I do think that in the key moments, and we've talked about the culminating moment, she stood fast. She understood her responsibility to the Constitution. I think all of these people, almost all, in the end had a, a moment where they had to look, look in the mirror and think about the oath that they swore and understand that it wasn't to a man, Donald Trump, but, but to the Constitution. Certainly that happened with Mark Esper. And Esper finally decided, okay, here I stand. It certainly happened with Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who made a terrible mistake in accompanying the president across uh, Lafayette uh, Square to the church and knew it and was, I, th I think, embarrassed and ashamed by what had happened and vowed never to let it happen again. And I think with, with Haspel, she drew a line. Here I stand. I, I can do no other. And uh, she, when it came down to, down to it, the decisive scene in, in, in mid-December, she was came to the White House to uh, the president's uh, daily intelligence briefing meeting. She hadn't been there for a while because of COVID restrictions. Uh, after the briefing was over, Mark Meadows, the White House Chief Staff, came to her and said, Director Haspel, the president intends to fire uh, your deputy 
Vaughan and appoint in his place as deputy director of the CIA, Cash Patel. And Haspel responded, if you do that, I will resign. Meadows leaves, comes back about 15 minutes later and says, the president changed his mind. He's not going to appoint Cash Patel. He's not going to fire your deputy. He's not going to appoint Cash Patel. So it's an amazing example of what, of what Jack was talking about earlier. This really interesting thing about Trump, that although he has the absolute power as commander-in-chief to do things, in the end, for reasons that are hard to, to explain even now, he tended to back down. I could give you a, a list of a dozen different examples of that happening. It happened with Haspel. So uh, I think she, you know, she, in the moment that was crucial, she stood her ground, you know, deserves a real commendation. Uh, Christopher Miller, the Secretary of Defense, I think was largely a figurehead. He was not uh, active as a SECDEF. He deferred to General Milley, the ch Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, in many matters. He deferred to his Chief of Staff, Patel, and many other matters. The White House had people who were sort of operating behind his back, in effect. I, I noted one amazing example where a retired Army colonel named Douglas McGregor uh, got President Trump to sign an order withdrawing all U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Back then it was something like 4,800. By the end of the year, sudden, dramatic withdrawal of troops. This President signed an order to that effect. It arrives at the Pentagon. Chiefs of Staff, Chairman Milley, look at it and said, what the heck is this? And uh, in short order, it was it was pushed back, and there'd been no process of discussion whatsoever. I don't think Miller was significantly involved in that. He didn't go to bat for Trump, but he, I, I think he was just, a, in that period, a, a secondary figure, that it was Patel and certain other Trump inner circle people who were more important. So, Jack, when I listen to these stories and when I read them, I kind of vacillate as David does at the end of the column where he kind of says, you know, I'm not sure whether the upshot of this is that we dodged a bullet or how close we came to not dodging a bullet. Is the, in your judgment, is the major significance of these stories that Trump could get as close to getting these things done as he did, or that at the end of the day, the system had these mechanisms of pushback, some through career actors and some of them through the very political actors whom he'd appointed himself. I think you could say it's both, Ben. I mean, first of all, we don't really know, as David's story makes clear, exactly what Trump was up to at the very end and putting these folks in place, whether it was about, you know, something related to an, an attempted coup or whether it was just about trying to control the intelligence community and draw down the troops. We don't really know what the aim was. So we don't know if, if things had gone differently, what actually would have happened. But I do think that the main <laughs> takeaway is, once again, and I, and I don't mean to be romantic about this, but once again, how well the system worked in keeping the commander-in-chief from doing crazy and inappropriate things that he technically had the authority to do. I want to also comment on, I think this is important to consider, how extraordinarily difficult it is for people in Haspel and Barr situation, people who are confirmed officials who have important positions atop the executive branch and who 
by the very nature of those positions, you know, have to carry out the president's policy wishes, even if they think that the president is nuts, even if the president is saying crazy things on Twitter every day. As a general matter, they have jobs to do, and that includes, to some extent, carrying out, you know, the wishes of the president. And yet, on the other hand, trying to sort of negotiate the craziness, trying to figure out what to ignore, what to carry out, and where to stand up. Those are extraordinarily difficult judgment calls, day-to-day judgment calls, I'm sure. And I think we only know, I mean, David's story is a great example. We only know a very little bit thus far about all of the things that went on that didn't happen. I imagine that there are many, many more stories of Trump efforts to do things uh, that we don't yet know about. So there's more to learn. But I think on the whole, I would say that it's a story that should be somewhat reassuring. Of course, you know, you can imagine different people in those slots. You can imagine non-confirmed officials atop the CIA. What if Trump had been able to get his people atop the CIA? So the what ifs could go on. And so we don't really know what the downside might have been. David, do you fundamentally look at this story as a story of a bullet dodged or as a story of a loaded gun left on the table? Well, I, I think it, it, it was a, a bullet uh, dodged. The damage that was done by uh, Trump's behavior and the divisions it caused in the country are a continuing problem. We're not out of the woods. We're not, e- not even close. So it's hard for me to say it's a bullet dodged. I also want to just uh, add a, a thought that I had as I was doing this reporting. As courageous and correct as I think the senior officials in many agencies who checked Trump from some of his impulses, as as courageous as they were, were describing a situation that should make us uncomfortable. These officials were not elected. Donald Trump was elected. They were exercising powers that arguably they don't have. In another context, if if you change the set of facts, you'd say this was an extra-legal coup by appointed officials against the elected leader. And that's what a lot of Americans who support Donald Trump, in fact, feel. So I think we need to be, to be careful about seeing this as a, as a hallelujah moment. Things like this shouldn't happen. But was it that? I mean, to, t- to take the example you give of... Gina Haspel, what did what did she really do? She didn't launch a coup against the president. She was informed by the chief of staff that he meant to fire her deputy and install someone she regarded as totally unqualified. She said, if you do that, I'll resign. And the president backed down. Isn't that the way the system is supposed to work? In that particular instance, Ben, I think it worked exactly as it should. She, she responded, you, you can order this person fired, but uh, I'm not going to condone it, and I, I will resign. And, that, and that's the kind of behavior that we, that we want. I think, although this wasn't the subject of my article, I, I think it's fair to say that in the last few months of Trump, certainly after the election, there were a number of ways that people tried to ring fence this impulsive presence to make sure that we didn't accidentally get into a war. For example, on the question of whether 
uh, let's imagine that an order had been issued to, to launch nuclear weapons or, or in a confrontation with Iran that was continuing that period, there'd been a, an order to take action that could have led to very costly war with Iran. I think there was an effort at the White House, at the State Department, at the Pentagon to make sure that those orders were carefully vetted in an unusual way so that they wouldn't be automatic. So I think that's part of what I mean when I say that there were these extraordinary steps, not to criticize what, what Haspel did. I just want to make one more comment about what we should make of the stories that I reported. I think it's really important, and I have been trying to figure out how to do it myself as a journalist, and I invite you both to join in this, to make as much of this story on the record so that Americans understand it as possible. Right now, it's a bunch of anonymous sources. I, I mean, I, I try not to write things that I'm not certain are true, and I confident that what I wrote in this story is true, but it's not on the record. And I, I think somehow, whether it's a commission, whether it's, I just, I don't, I'd invite you to think about how do we get from this point where we're just speculating about what happened? These are, you know, ex extraordinarily important issues, constitutional issues, political issues. How do we get the material on the record so we can all as citizens think about it? I, I mean, I would broaden that point, which is if you accept, and I do, the point that Jack made earlier and that you've uh, reiterated, which is that there are probably a lot of these stories, things that didn't happen, orders that weren't followed, threats to resign that were issued that caused people to back down. The list of things that didn't happen, but that came varying degrees of close to happening, that is a a really important alternative history of the last four years and and how to document that history, like the things that the things that almost happened, uh, strikes me as a really important uh, a kind of accountability. We we do tend to spend a lot of time on things that did happen, but you know this is a story about things that did happen and things that almost happened, and how to how to flesh out that larger narrative strikes me as very important. Jack, what do you think? What's the mechanism for that? Yeah, I think it's very important also. I've thought about this a lot. We're going to be getting, obviously, self-serving tales and memoirs and, and, and historical accounts by journalists and the like of what happened in the last year of the Trump administration, surely. And that'll fill out the record to some degree. But I agree, it, it, it won't be quite comprehensive and, and as it needs to be. And on the record, probably won't be on the record much of it. So I think there are a couple of options. I think the main option, I don't think a commission can work because, first of all, we have to define what it is we're looking for, uh, because you could just say, let's examine the Trump administration and, and it could it could, it could be a four-year investigation. If we're just focused on the last couple of months of the administration, which is maybe a good place to focus, but so we understand really what happened during the, the transition, I think that's a good place to focus. I don't think a commission is the right mechanism because I just think that Creating a commission and giving it bipartisan credibility is going to be very hard. 
And my own view is that the right institution to do it is Congress. Congress can, as we saw, for example, in the Senate Intelligence Report on interference in the election and on related things, Congress has the tools to investigate these things, and it can do so under the guise of trying to figure out what reforms are appropriate, you know, depending on how you define the inquiry. And it could have every single person come up and testify, and it could do investigations, and it could write a report, and there could be a majority and a minority report, and that might be fine. But I think that is the least bad mechanism I can think of to sort of get the facts out, so to speak, which is what we all think is important. David, what do you think? Is Congress capable of this? I mean, I can argue this both ways. I can say, you know, look at how many terrible congressional investigations there have been and how, you know, lousy and political their their investigative capacity is in its regular deployment. On the other hand, you can look at it and say at the end of the day, the Senate Intelligence Committee did a pretty remarkable job on the facts. And actually, the Impeachment Committee did a pretty good job on a high stakes investigation in real time, notwithstanding the almost total lack of cooperation of the administration. So, you know, what do you think if you if you had serious investigative commitment on the part of Congress? Is this a fool's errand or is this a doable thing? I think it's it's doable. Um, and one question is it doable and credible to the to the country? And I I, th- I think that would be more likely on the Senate side. As much admiration as I have for Adam Schiff uh, intellectually. It's unfortunately the case, I think, that the House Intelligence Committee is, is, is seen as a very polarized and partisan body. That's not true with the Senate Intelligence Committee. And I think if Mitch McConnell really means what he has said about his own mortification at what happened in this period, I mean, he, he has said he didn't talk to, to Trump basically from the election onward. And I know. That he was aware, he was made aware of the events that I narrate in my in my long column as they were happening. So, if McConnell will bless a Senate effort, presumably by the Senate Intelligence Committee, led by Mark Warner, who was had a good history of working with the Republicans, I think there is a chance of doing what what you and Jack described. And it's probably the best shot. I, I, I wonder if there's some way to, to broaden the uh, Justice Department's investigation of events uh, surrounding January 6th. And I end up thinking, no, that you couldn't make it broad enough that it would get at this conduct. It's not clear that this conduct violated laws. In some cases, it might have, but it, it's it's just very borderline. So you know, I, I think the, the Senate's probably the right way. As a journalist, I want to go back to this material and just push people. Like, yeah, you know, you need to say this on the record. You need to, you need to stand up and tell the story. I don't think I'll be successful, but I think that's part of of my responsibility, having gotten down in the weeds and understanding the material pretty well. On the Senate side, do you think there is a partner? on the Intelligence Committee for Mark Warner. I mean, I, I 
have a lot of admiration for the way Richard Burr conducted himself in his tenure as chairman and actually managed to run a bipartisan process for for the uh, Russia investigation. And as I say, I think actually produced a pretty substantial and excellent piece of work product. He is not the ranking member right now. And so I'm wondering if you could replicate the partnership that he and Warner had with Warner as chairman and Marco Rubio as vice chairman. Well, they're off to a reasonably good start from what I, what, what I know. And Rubio, there's not much in it for, for Rubio in trying to, you know, out Trump, uh, idolize Ron DeSantis or other Florida. I mean, I, I just don't see how Rubio's career would, would benefit from taking an ex- extreme position, quite the opposite, if he was seen as part of an effort to establish a firmer base of truth for Republican Party would probably be the best, smartest thing he could do. And we're not, we're not always going to be in this goofy situation we're in now. So if Rubio's playing a long game, he he, uh, he should do it. There are other Republicans on the committee who were interesting people. Uh, Angus King, independent, really a Democrat in, in terms of how he's counted, but, but he's a, another person who could be important in this. There's one just one thing I want to add to our conversation and I'd love to have your comments on this. And that that's the, <laughs> forgive me, but that's the let's be fair to Cash Patel and company argument. So Patel was assigned to investigate the Russian investigation back in 2017. And he does find some anomalies that I think should bother reasonable people. The most obvious one is the Carter Page FISA warrant. And the more you look at that, the more shocking the behavior of the FBI officer who, who pleaded guilty to, to criminal charges for, in effect, uh, falsifying the, the FISA application is. But the whole process doesn't doesn't really stand up to scrutiny very well. The, the way in which material was, was gathered that was suggestive of, of real links it just doesn't. As I look at it, I can imagine Republicans saying, "This is tainted." This, you know, the people in the U.S. and maybe in Britain who just, you know, wanted to stop Trump before he, he got any more dangerous. So, I think there's enough real evidence that they found of improper activity as the Trump investigation was was gathering strength that. We, sh- we shouldn't just dismiss that out of hand. I think Patel then, you know, egged on by, by Trump and people around him, went into a different phase. But in, in the beginning, um, I think there was reason for people to say, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't look right. So I don't disagree with that. And I think, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time going back over the famed Nunes memo, which was, of course, written or drafted by Kash Patel on the Carter Page FISA and holding it up against the findings of the Inspector General, which are, of course, quite damning of the FBI's conduct of the, of the Carter Page FISA. And I do think that Cash Patel saw some things in that episode early on that 
people like me, not that I had access to the information that he did, but, you know, people with my instincts did not see uh, early on. And so I, I am not above giving him credit for having a certain set of insights, although I do think he misinterpreted the consequence of nearly all of those insights. But it seems to me a very different matter to go then this extra step that he went and say, having found that the Carter Page FISA was mishandled or believing that it was mishandled, I am therefore going to go back and try to discredit the entire origins of the investigation. Uh, And this is something that I think he did with uh, enormous effectiveness in the sense that I think a lot of people really came to believe it, including political leadership, but also a very large number of ordinary people through the offices of Fox News, and has been validated by exactly no subsequent investigation. That is, the IG rejects it. Bill Barr, who flirted with it very publicly, eventually drops the point because I think he finds it it can't be defended. And then, of course, refuses, as, as you report, to disclose the information and declassify the information that Kash Patel had gathered in support of this thesis. And so I think it should be possible to say, hey, this is a guy who had some important insight on a narrow, though very important question, and proceeded to wildly misinterpret that insight and then extend it to a whole series of things that it didn't really apply to. Does that does that does that seem inadequately fair to him? Uh, no, I think I think you've you've captured the point that I wanted to make. That although his his later actions, I think, were wrong and, and disturbing. Uh, in the beginning, he was right about some things, and it's important for people to want to maintain some balance and credibility to to admit that. I, I think, as Jack said, in a different context, there's still so much that we that we don't know. Trump's argument from the beginning was, "They tap my wires." You know, they 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 some unspecified. They were bugging his meetings in Trump Tower, and there was a suggestion early on that that they might be the British Communications Intelligence. Uh, agency, GCHQ, you remember there was a huge flap about that. There's something that's been uh, bugging these folks from the beginning that's very, it gets into very sensitive areas. Who knows what it is? Not our, in a sense, it's not our task, but there is a lot still that we don't know, not just about what Trump acolytes like Cash Patel did, but what it was that they thought was the the kind of uh, ground zero fault here. If I may ask, how has Cash Patel responded to your column, if at all? He has he has not responded. I made the most strenuous, almost comically, uh, uh, you know, ring at the doorbell at nine o'clock at night to to make sure that I was giving him a chance to comment, and he did he did not comment. So I, 
We'll see. Again, I think it's important to that people keep pushing to get more of this disclosed, as as you, Ben, and Jack have said. We're going to leave it there. David Ignatius, Jack Goldsmith, thank you both so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast on all the social media sites. Leave us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.